it's maybe not so difficult to get one sensational shot. the dial to one sensational shot welcome back into the electronic labyrinth where just like the x-files we open a series with a mythology two-parter and where just like the x-files that two-parter is esoteric and obtuse high-minded but half-formed and not nearly as good as the one with the stretchy bloke in our first episode one year ago we profiled lucas and coppola the spiritual fathers of oss who we love and hate both equally today we turn focus to fellow movie brat steven spielberg and consider the franchise he kick-started 25 years ago, Jurassic Park. We begin by casting a critical eye over the latest instalment, this month's much-maligned mega-hit, Jurassic World Fallen Kingdom. Hi there, Fletch. How's it going? You well? I'm not well enough. Now, I've been unwell for about four weeks. It feels like longer. I swear it could be six. We won the playoff semi-final on a Monday night, and since then I've been peaky. Just recently, over the last week, my hearing's been blocked just like my nose. And honestly, one of the highlights of watching Fallen Kingdom yesterday was when my left ear popped back into place. <laughs> when you yawn to get it back, when you've got water in your ear, a little bit like Kramer on the mm. plane. Mm. And regrettably, that was one of the highlights for a film that I found lacklustre that really had very little for me. And Luke and I want to figure that one out. And then we'll move on to Jurassic Park in general. What is it and how is it that Jurassic Park gets so many things right and yet its sequels get those things wrong? I know that's a loaded question, but Luke and I do <laughs> feel that it's one of the preeminent franchises in modern Hollywood history. Mm. There are few better potentials than... And I still keep the Crichton with me. On a remote jungle island, genetic engineers have created a dinosaur game park. So much can be done with such a simple premise, and I don't think <laughs> it has... It's been 25 years since it's been done properly, since its potential has been fulfilled in a single film. Again and again, I feel an audience has been let down. So we, we'll try to explore what's gone right, because lots has gone right, and even in Juan Antonio Bayona's recent, there's some good stuff. Yeah, But definitely. also what's gone wrong. So, Fallen Kingdom, let's go. Come Shall on. we start up top with uh, a little bit of listener feedback? Um, a couple of people got in touch uh, on the Facebook page, One Sensational Shot on Facebook. Long-time listeners Phil uh, Barron got in touch, and he, he had a lot of things to say. He said a lot of pros and cons. Uh, he thinks that uh, it did break the convention of the sort of people on an island thing, stranded on an island trope. Uh, and he did like the visuals of the Haunted House third act. Uh, he did not think that the Indoraptor presented too much of a threat. He enjoyed some of the subplot about the uh, the, 
close. Uh, this is spoilers, by the way. I hasten to add, but uh, he uh, he enjoyed some of the subplot about the clone child. We'll get onto that in a minute. But uh, he did think it was worth uh, worth the discussion on OSS. Uh, also, Tom Hadley, another long-time listener, he got in touch on the Facebook page too, basically said he went to go and see Fallen Kingdom and he thought it was uh, awful. Uh, he said it was a real shame, can't quite believe it was Jay Abiona film. To be fair, it wasn't his fault. The script is mostly to blame. Some of the casting slash acting also pretty ropey. So they got in touch. We'd certainly be interested to know what anyone else thinks about Fallen Kingdom. In terms of myself, I was watching it the other day. I was hungover, and I really, really wanted... The whole way through, I kept thinking, it's because I'm hungover. It's because I'm hungover. And then as I came out, uh, I turned to Lex, and she just said that was that was awful. She was sort of shaking her head. She just thought it was so poorly executed. Um, and I think you can sum a lot of it up in tone. I think one of the problems I've had with a lot, the vast majority of the sequels is that the original Jurassic Park is a film, a true family film, that can be enjoyed by both adults and children because the children enjoy the action and adventure and the dinosaurs. Uh, there's some family dynamics in there which we can come on to as well. The adults can enjoy adult conversation. It feels like real people who are paleontologists and scientists having adult conversations. And whether that's about genetic engineering or the pros and cons thereof, or just whether uh, I want kids or I don't want kids, you don't want kids, you know, tomato, tomato, let's call the whole thing off. <laughs> if it's a sparring couple, it feels natural. The dialogue feels fairly natural. The performances feel fairly natural. It doesn't feel like it's be- you're being talked down to at all. And in most of the subsequent sequels, even Lost World is guilty of it. That's not necessarily the case. Immediately, we start to feel a bit more pulpy, a bit more like uh, the dialogue's ripped from the pages of a comic book. I guess I'm just trying to basically say it doesn't necessarily feel like natural dialogue and I think the tone of the sequels uh, suffers a lot and specifically with Fallen Kingdom there was just so much wrong with the tone I've got a whole load of things I can go into Fletch and I, I think we should keep the conversation going talking up top about the overall tone of the piece and picking up what Phil said as well like a break from convention you know do, do you have any thoughts on that a couple of things that I'm receptive to and that I'm looking for I suppose in this franchise and one of them is that it takes it off the island. Yeah. So that's interesting to me. I think that we've had four Jurassic Park films on islands. It's going to take something extraordinary and a complete genre shift to show us something that we haven't already seen if it's simply dinosaurs on an island. In the same way that I was pleased, and if you've read my article, you'll see that there is a way to read Jurassic World, that it forges its own path. I was pleased to see Bayona take the action off the island after about an hour. So that's good. And it did seem to switch genres. And I think that's the only way for us to get anything interesting out of this franchise by this Mm. point. My touchstone for that would be the Alien films, another franchise that Luke and I love and which I think most people would agree has in recent times been underserved. However, its initial four iterations, although the third and fourth are flawed, they are bloody interesting. Each time it changes genre. So Alien is a haunted house picture. Aliens, sci-fi action. The third is existentialist horror, more like a serial killer picture. Yeah. A lot of brooding. The antagonist is barely seen. And then by the fourth, as we explored about a year ago now, Alien Resurrection is gothic, grand guignol, slasher picture. 
mm. frenetic and gory. Each of the films succeeds in some ways, and I think that's the way that a franchise can be kept vital. Jurassic Park has never done that. They've never bothered. The first is a family adventure picture, but one, as Lucas said, which can be enjoyed by all audiences because it's pitched at adults. There are adult conversations throughout the film. It's very much a film about adults and about adulthood and making adult decisions, as Lucas explored. As Lucas explored in his articles, that film is about a couple deciding to procreate. Lost World is a family adventure picture. With a bit uh, of an eco message. Yeah, yeah. Jurassic Park 3 is definitely just standard family adventure. It's all right. It has its moments. Jurassic World is a family adventure, just a, a straight retread of Jurassic Park in a lot of ways. But this one does take a tonal shift. It changes genres after about an hour. And that's to its credit. It doesn't mean I enjoyed it in almost any way. I was rarely... <laughs> no, this is the thing. I was, I was rarely entertained. I was yeah. rarely I was, thrilled. I was bored in it. I came out and I said to Lex, I was bored throughout so much of that film. And... I think to be bored in a film is is just about the worst criticism you can give it, any film, and to be mm. bored in a Jurassic movie, or if if in you know in the, if you're bored in a Star Wars pic, Star Wars picture or whatever, that is failing on multiple levels. Um, I, I completely agree with you. Yeah, I, I I thought like Phil said when he wrote into the show, um, it's interesting that they took it away from the island. What's what's funny is if you follow this as closely as I have, because I I have been a Jurassic Park super fan for many many years. And um, ever since the third one, I was following online very closely every leaked script, everything that kept uh, coming out about Jurassic Park 4, as it was called at the time. From the beginning, uh, very early scripts, they had, um, there was, um, was, I'm sure it was a John Sayles script, and there was always a guy that had trained raptors, or there there was like a marine character that kind of morphed into Chris Pratt's character. There was definitely an idea of trained raptors. Uh, although I think that was a bit more on the nose in earlier scripts, and uh, that that filtered through eventually to the to what we now call Jurassic World. What's funny with the second, uh, sorry, the third act of Fallen Kingdom, is the haunted house kind of element, and that was something that was in uh, the one of the early Jurassic Park four scripts. The marine goes to Nublar to find he's hired by Hammond to go to either Nublar from the first movie to find the shaving cream can of uh, Dennis Nedry, which is something else that none of the sequels have ever picked up. Is the yeah. uh, Spielberg says that he uh, he lingered on the shot of the of the shaving can under the mud uh, because that's where he thought any sequel would go. And of course, Michael Crichton, when he wrote the Lost World novel, did not he took it off in a completely different direction. So uh, the Marine goes to the, uh, is hired by Hammond to go to Nublar to find the shaving cream can, retrieve the embryos, and is then, um, I think there's a couple run-ins with dinosaurs, and is then uh, assaulted by some army guys or whatever, some toughs, and he wakes up in um, a castle in, I think in the Swiss Alps or something like that, and he wakes up in a medieval castle, and then there's, uh, that's where they, they find dinosaur hybrids, that's where he finds um, weaponized raptors who are trained and that's when there's some um, kind of a slasher horror um, haunted castle flick uh, in in the final sort of half of the movie so that that went off on that it's kind of taken us two films now with elements of that script to kind of get to that point um, so I thought all of that was interesting but but I just think this Fallen Kingdom film was boring none of these characters really had arcs there's a couple of people in there 
I mean, so like the the hacker and then the vet veterinarian. If you took those guys out of the picture, does it change yeah. anything? Yeah, it was interesting to see Janine Garofalo from 1995 getting work. <laughs> it was the biggest surprise for me. But I was thinking that as well. Uh, exposition. And as th- there was elements of ingenuity and excitement to the blood transfusion. Having said that, we've already seen them do a, a fix a baby T-Rex's leg, right? Yeah. Yeah. Which is a so, highlight. It's a good, good, good... Yeah. Uh, that's one a hell of an animatronic as well, because... One of the great things about Lost World is that baby T-Rex is completely animatronic. You could hold it in your arms and there's something that really comes across there. Um, you know, there, there are lots of animatronics in this film, but no, nowhere near on that same level. And uh, the transfusion scene, you know, there was not like a big animatronic raptor there. Everything you've said about how revisions of scripts and screenplays twist and evolve and co-mingle and you were talking about Haunted House and that sounds like a proposed idea for Indy 3, Haunted Scottish Castle. Which kind of found its way to a little bit of Indy 3 uh, when he goes to rescue his dad. It's in it for, you know, for yeah. five minutes or something. And uh, this, there's a melange. The same eight or nine writers have had control of these properties over 25, 30-ish years. They do see, and I don't think it's because they're out of ideas. I think it's because they feel they have to write to a type, and mm. it subordinates them to cliche. Uh, the dialogue in this one was execrable. As much as I've said I appreciate a genre switch and a turn, that's at the same time when I go to see a Jurassic Park film, I don't want what was given to me, which was towards the end um, the kind of boogeyman haunted house scares that i would find in innumerable horror pictures like yeah. the orphanage for instance uh yeah I, yeah I there's, don't, there's I a don't lot in there that. that there was a lot in there that a lot of the death scenes were kind of dull um and the girl uh, uh, traversing the rooftops mm-hmm. no uh that i re- i recognize that i'm i'm running a careful line just as she was in the film because i don't want to come across as a typical fan who says what can and what cannot be in the film. But what must be in the film is it must be entertaining. And you should try to show me stuff I haven't seen before. All the stuff that's... So much of the stuff that's included that hasn't been in Jurassic Park films in the past isn't entertaining and doesn't fit. It feels like Bayona's own ideas inserted into a framework that can't house it. And even the girl doing parkour, that just made me think of Vanessa Lee Chester... Um, on the parallel oh, yeah. bars, uh, kicking the raptor in like. the face. Yeah, wish, you know that was good like. wasn't it? I think the um, like you mentioned on the roof and and, and that kind of thing, and and uh, I thought a lot of it looked visually really striking. Um, I thought I thought the uh, opening uh, scene with the, the opening tease with the the T Rex introduction uh, had a lot going for it visually, and I liked I liked the way the T Rex was introduced. I d- Again, I'm now starting to sound like a fan because I it, it didn't necessarily feel like a Jurassic Park film to me, but that was that that was the director's prerogative, and and I think that there was stuff in there that that was really cool. I loved the flash of lightning, and you saw it just for a second, almost like it was daylight when the yeah. guy's back was turned. And there was little moments like that, and the Indoraptor hybrid on the roof. I thought some of that looked. If you could take a step back and just look at it, it looked um, looked pretty stunning. But um, I, I agree with you. Didn't necessarily feel like what like what I wanted from the film. Um, way too much exposition. Um, I unlike Phil, who wrote into the show, I didn't really enjoy the subplot particularly with the 
cloned uh, granddaughter or daughter. That kind of made... I, I can see what they're, they're going for. Something Jurassic... Speaking as a super fan, something that Jurassic Park's always never had, which fans, hardcore fans, have wanted it to have, is a mythology, like Star Wars or uh, Lord of the Rings. Um, Jurassic Park's always been quite shallow, and you've got, you've got what they call the novel canon, because Michael Crichton's novel's very different to the films, then you've got the film canon. Generally speaking, the novel canon serves as backstory to the films, unless what happens in the novel is, is contradicted by the film. So you can flesh out the film a bit with some of the stuff that happens in the novel, basically, is the short answer. There's very few pieces of uh, marketing and, and product that have expanded the Jurassic Park universe in the same way that computers and video games and novels have expanded the Star Wars one. One example is 1998's PC game Trespasser, which is a deeply flawed first-person shooter. Um, very legendary, because it, when it finally went to market, it was riddled with bugs, Funnily enough, uh, Mini Driver uh, provides the voice to the character in that film, as does Richard Attenborough, who provides a voiceover. So Mini Driver's character, who you are playing, crash lands on Isla Sauna from the second film. And as you're navigating the island, John Hammond's voiceover comes in occasionally, giving you little hints. It's from, he's supposed to be speaking from his memoirs, and he gives quite haunting accounts of their, and, and inspiring accounts of what was happening to him in the 70s and 80s when they were developing the genetic engineering that was capable of bringing dinosaurs back to life. Some of it's great. There's some great people online. Uh, Jack Anthony Ewens um, is the guy that springs to mind. He's well known in the Jurassic Park fan community, fan community who did um, a project called Jurassic Time. And it, it basically, in a nutshell, brings together all of Richard Attenborough's um, narration and voiceover, including some stuff in the game code that never made it to the final game, but people have... have since gone into the the depths of the game and pulled out and then put presented for people online my point is that jurassic park's never quite had that jurassic park 3 dropped a tremendous ball by only slightly hinting at any kind of backstory uh all it is is just people going to an island to rescue someone and and sam neil is tricked into going uh and there's a throwaway line about oh there's a spinosaurus on the island i don't remember that on ingen's lists it makes you wonder what else they were doing here and Funnily enough, Jack Anthony Ewins, I believe I'm right in saying, and, and some other online fans who I'm aware of, has have helped consult with the producers of the new Jurassic World films. Uh, and a lot of the vi- what they call the viral marketing websites of uh, the Jurassic World films, which are designed to look like um, real-life websites for corporations, etc., teasing some of the backstory, go into a lot of um, depth around this kind of new canon that's being developed for, for Jurassic World, I suppose. It's not necessarily on screen, but it hints, for example, um, that the Spinosaur maybe was one of the first hybrids that had uh, was being worked on when the new company inquire, acquired InGen. Uh, so the company you see in Jurassic World, uh, who, uh, Mizrati, you know, have brought, brought the island and, and then opened up the park. So there's little, little things like that. And I think that Fallen Kingdom... Um, is finally trying to put a lot of that on screen. And that's why we have this subplot now of, of, we now have a character who, you know, we've never seen before, but we're now introduced as, this is Hammond's partner, business partner. They obviously grew apart. We've got this clone daughter, um, was obviously a step too far for the, for Hammond, uh, which is, you know, why they had a falling out. Um, and that's all fine. But then, but then of course they were having to stand around in corridors talking about it for ages you know, completely ruining any kind of sense of kinetic energy or pacing. Um, we've got dinosaurs running around trying to eat them, but suddenly, 
something that both the new Jurassic World films have been guilty of, I think, is the villains have become very, very moustache twirling, unlike yeah. Nedry, who was quite credibly just a disgruntled uh, employee. Um, the, the villains now are very top hat, monocle, moustache twirling, and we got this whole monologue, you know, in uh, uh, in, in this in in this film, uh, right in the middle of an action sequence, just trying to develop backstory, which I didn't find myself not really caring about a tremendous amount. I'm, I'm not sure if uh, how you felt about any of that. These screenplays, they need revisions, they need dialogue washes by someone decent like Sales. It, it will never happen. It's what we want, and it's not just that we want it as adults and that we have become more sophisticated. I think one of the reasons we have a certain level of sophistication in our film going is because we got good films, good mainstream films, in the 80s and 90s when we were coming up. So our grounding had a level of sophistication which meant that we were on already a few rungs up the ladder and we could kick on from there. We expect more. And, you know, this isn't to introduce the reputation of David Kep, but I long for those days now, for the dialogue mm. that he was able to produce, because Jurassic Park is written intelligently. Those are characters mm. having interesting, witty conversations. So much of the dialogue in this one gives me nothing. And I am a dialogue hound, it must be said. That's one of the reasons why I was so taken with the improv comedy boom of about 15 years ago, coming off of Zoolander and then moving into Anchorman. And it ran its course by, I don't know, 2010, I suppose. But witticisms and a way with language bring me into a film. And this one, one of the terms that they used at least twice, go extinct, go extinct. Mm. This island's about to go extinct. These dinosaurs are about to go extinct. Now, number one, it sounds like a bowel movement. And number two, <laughs> and I had this thought, again, while watching the film, I was disengaged to the extent that I could think my own thoughts. And it occurred to me, one problem I had with the Ghostbusters reboot, they didn't feel like adults. They didn't feel like scientists. Mm. And then I applied that to Fallen Kingdom. And I realised that in Jurassic Park, the protagonist, the three leads are all doctors. Yeah. Ellie Sattler is a paleobotanist. Yes. Alan Grant is a paleontologist. Mm. And Ian Malcolm is a rock star, genius, mathematician, chaos Chaotician. Chaotician. <laughs> <laughs> and they've got degrees and masters and PhDs. Intelligent, reasonable, rational people. Our leads in this one, our heroes in this one, Owen Grady is an ex-seal, mm -hmm. and an animal trainer. Mm -hmm. Claire, uh, what, business lady? They're not smart people. And then the, the two supporting characters we've got, the screaming fellow and Janine Garofalo, they're, mm -hmm. they're meant to be smart, but they don't really serve any particular purpose because they're so tremendously underwritten, even more underwritten than Lauren Lapkus and Jake Johnson in Jurassic World. And first time of watching, they did zero for me. I, and Luke, you were there with me. I, I really, we were watching it together and I really did feel like we had been presented with characters we're meant to like because they're the audience, the avatar for the audience and they're hip and young and we're meant to think they're cool. And it didn't work for me at all. And it took me... I, I found something to like about Jake Johnson's Lowry character. But, yeah, well, we grew up with Jurassic Park. These are almost genius-level people. Really smart. They don't make stupid decisions. I, I remember even in a... It's in the book, and it might be in the film as well, when Muldoon comments on Malcolm and says, doesn't he? He made a tourniquet. That's smart. 
and in the book and i know that we we're not necessarily accepting the book as canon i don't want to get into fandom arguments but in the book while tracking tim it's noticed that tim has taken his watch off that is broken so he's taken it off because it's no longer useful Mm. It's good. It's good to have smart protagonists. We don't again. We we don't need them to be genius, but we need them to be smart and at least as smart as the audience. And in Fallen Kingdom, Ted Levine's character, bearing in mind, all right, he's overconfident, but he's still a man with forty years military experience. Yeah. In pursuit of a trophy, which is only mentioned once earlier in the film, and I know that because this time I didn't even go to the lab once. I held it because I, and that's the funniest thing because usually I'm sitting in a picture like Phantom Thread thinking which scene is going to be inessential. And you wait yeah. 90 minutes and realise no, it's, it's all Thread. good. Yeah. <laughs> but um, Fallen yeah. Kingdom, yeah, I, I, I watched the whole thing. And that scene think, felt shoehorned in. How that, did he last like, four decades in this profession? If uh, yeah, it's exactly like what happened with Rafe Spall's character, not in Fallen Kingdom, but in Prometheus. Right mm. before you is a creature that's never been glimpsed by human eyes. And uh, again, with with Ted Levine, here's a dinosaur that no one's ever heard of before. Yeah, you know, I've been told that it's bred between a really smart dino and another really smart dino. I'll just jump in the cage, man. That should be, yeah. A couple of shots from a trank gun. Uncalibrated. It's, it's nonsense. It's, it's silly to expect the audience to go along with you like that. And... I don't blame it on Bayona. It's the entire production's problem. By that point, a director can do nothing about it. He can only stage that scene and give it as much pizzazz as he can imbue it with. And, you know, the dinosaur kind of winks at the camera, doesn't it? And that's fun. But, yeah, you were saying it feels dropped in and shoehorned in. Yeah, oh, just when when, when they're setting up what what is prized with the teeth. Oh, he likes animal teeth, whatever. It just felt like they'd almost forgotten to put that in there. Oh, yeah, better set that one up because... yeah. Um that'll that'll uh, that'll be interesting later. Um I there's not oodles more I, I have to say about it just that other than I I was bored and I think that um that script needed to go through several more revisions that that felt like a first or second draft at, at best. Um you know I I I like Colin and um Colin Trevorrow and uh, his writing partner Derek Connolly. I, I, I enjoyed Safe Not Guaranteed. I was then long a champion for Jurassic World uh, until it came out. Um, but then, you know, realised, you know, these things, sometimes you're under pressure to make a soft reboot of something and there's an element of it is what it is. Uh, and and the, the film kind of makes a joke about that. Your, your article, which is a very well articulated article, about the making of Jurassic, uh, sorry, about um, how you've read Jurassic World, the the first one, um, it, you know, it's very interesting. I, you know, I think Colin and Derek were, were putting stuff into that script because they knew it was um, a big corporate environment that they'd entered into, and they had a release date, and they had to make it, and therefore uh, they didn't, you know, so concerned whether whether or not they could, they didn't stop to think if they should. So therefore, yeah. the film is a, a little bit of a reading of that. Uh, this one, I don't know. This one just went through, and I, it was Colin and Derek again writing this one, but it it didn't feel like a final draft. M- maybe the production was too tight on it. You know, this is three years. Jurassic films tend to take four years in between each one. Um, that could be by the by. Uh, but the, yeah, it felt like um, it had so much promise, and um, it it ultimately felt boring with underdeveloped characters. But you know what? There was nothing in here as exciting as Jurassic Park three. Uh, Joe Johnson's Pteranodon sequence, yeah. which is you know the best thing about that film, and 
I didn't feel there was anything as good as that in here. A lot of people uh, online, I didn't stop to the end of the credit uh, post-credit sequence. This this is the first Jurassic film to ever have a post-credit sequence, and of course we have a montage at the end of all the dinosaurs finally um, in the real world, as it were. There's Blue the raptor uh, running through sort of the Californian suburbs or, or, or about to, about to. Uh, we see the T Rex going to a zoo and roar at a lion. And the post-credit sequence apparently is some pteranodons uh, in Las Vegas. And I thought to myself when I read that, they couldn't even get a post-credit sequence right. Because a post-credit sequence, it should should at least be a bit of a twist or a tease or a joke uh, to hint at what is to come or turn something on its head from, from the film you've just seen. Whereas that just felt like, from the way it's been described online at least, I guess I haven't seen it. It just feels like something that could have been edited into the montage at the end of the film before the credits. I didn't, I didn't quite understand yeah. why why that's a post credit sequence. Um, yeah, this this whole film just felt like it was what uh, a lot of these franchise films uh, actually uh, struggle with these days. Prometheus did as well. Uh, it's become a buzzword online. World building. Uh, everything's about world building now, and you see people talking about it. Uh, uh, after after the fact about with like Empire Strikes Back in 1980, Irvin Kershner did not did not use the term world building for the uh, first Star Wars sequel, but of course it did. It does make the the universe a bigger place by uh, the big plot twist of I am your father. Suddenly, aha! Now there's new possibilities. Uh, the, the world is a bit bigger, and uh, with this Jurassic World movie, I think that it it was very much trying to build a world very rapidly in the space of two hours, and that's when you end up with a lot of exposition. The Amazing Spider-Man films did it, uh, and and fell foul of that with Andrew Garfield, uh, the Mark Webb pictures, the two Mark Webb pictures, the first Prometheus did. I think from memory, even the second one did uh, Covenant. Uh, did you know what I mean, Fletch? I think I think a lot of the time you're just you end up bogged down in your own mire of trying to. Well, I need to build this and I need to build this stuff because we're, we're making the third one. We're, and it know, comes down not, to ability it's... because Spielberg, Crichton, and Kep had to do that on the original Jurassic Park. They had to build a world, so they they have a their ability is greater and higher, and so they don't struggle in the same way. Every first film needs to introduce six or seven memorable characters and the premise but this one felt like it didn't feel like empire strikes back or the dark knight for instance it felt like the second matrix which has its moments but really you're gearing up for the final reckoning Mm. so it's all about treading water waiting for the third it happens too often now Here's a little problem that I had with Fallen Kingdom, and I think it speaks to sloppy filmmaking, filmmaking to a deadline perhaps. It's not a plot hole, it's a problem with approach. Now, I mm-hmm. I found it. I found the scene baffling when the baddies leave Owen Grady behind. Uh, they trank dart him and he's stuck in the forest clearing. He comes to... I still wasn't sure why he has... was even there anyway. Uh, I'm sorry to interrupt you, but I know that they do mention to him... You know, we had to have you here so we could track the raptor. I that's it was still not convincing enough to me with that line as to why they were even there or why they were essential for that tracking. <laughs> but anyway, yeah, you're right. They left him on the floor, forest floor to die, which also struck me as odd because they didn't hate each other that much. Like I, I didn't quite understand what was at stake there. But anyway, yeah, one element of it is that the filmmakers hadn't bothered to write why the mercenaries would murder a man in such a way. 
we presume there'll be um, something of a double cross, although even to call it that would suggest that they really had any kind of uh, arrangement. They didn't even seem to be antagonists at, at this point. Uh, more like Roland Tembo, I suppose, in The Lost World. We didn't know that they were baddies, just that we probably wouldn't align ourselves with their own morals. Mm. Anyway, so it was underwritten why they would all of a sudden prove themselves as so inherently evil, not just to trank the guy, but to leave him to die. We've gone from um, expeditioners to murderers in just a couple of seconds. Yeah. But then the next scene sees Owen come to, he has to outrun the lava while still under the effects of the trank dart. So it's a, a fairly humorous flopping around Ace Ventura 2 style as his limbs regain their movement while all of that is happening, uh, the camera focuses on lava melting the original Jurassic Park Ford Explorer and melting through some logs. None of which needs to be seen because we all know what lava does. But here's the problem. That scene has no jeopardy whatsoever. There isn't any tension. As an audience, we know that Owen will escape. He's the lead of the film. Reasonable filmmakers, filmmakers who cared about their product in the way that good filmmakers like Spielberg did, they would... In order to insert jeopardy into that, to create tension in that scene, just stick somebody else with Grady. Yeah. And it doesn't need to be anybody of any import. It can be a red shirt, just one of the other mm. mercenaries that's out there, knocked out at the same time, have him hit in the face by a raptor's tail or run into a tree branch. It doesn't matter. Just have him on the floor as well, because we know that Grady will escape, but we don't know if that guy will. And so there's a tension there, even if the tension is only... Ah, he's going to get burned up and it will look gross. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And what what would likely happen is that they both narrowly escape, then they run off, and then that bloke gets uh, run down by an apatosaur <laughs> a couple of moments later as they're all jogging down the hillside. Yeah. And w Which, uh, again, that sequence, already by that point in the film, as they're hurtling down towards the cliff edge, extincting themselves, essentially, just made me think that that was, in some ways representative of the film itself which is that this is the franchise going off a cliff mm. and fallen kingdom is... among us wouldn't wish that we we were with those dinosaurs <laughs> suiciding ourselves it was all a little bit silly it felt like the the myth of lemmings and it was uh, adequately executed but specifically there were half a dozen scenes in that film like the one i've spoken to mm. where poor writing robbed the scene of any jeopardy any tension any real connection to it yeah, I see. What I see what you're saying. Um, I think "Fallen Kingdom" is a very apt uh, name for the name for the film. I'm sure there must be reviews with that already in there. Uh, to think of a once great gold standard for family action adventure entertainment, uh, and to, to to reduce to this, uh, you know, it's, it, it definitely feels feels that way to me. Um, it was more interesting actually when they all fell off the cliff, and it felt more like a scene from The Impossible with Hugh McGregor, and uh, they're, they're in the gyrosphere they can't get out it's slowly filling up with water and owen has to try and uh you know smash it up to get them out that that was that had a bit more tension in it for me although of course uh, we know that bryce dallas howard isn't gonna isn't probably gonna drown but um suddenly there wasn't any cg dinosaurs or anything so it just felt a bit more uh like in the moment i suppose because you, you also know the lava's not real don't you like there's something in the back of your head, this stuff's. Uh, I, th I think you're, you're you're aware of this stuff. You really are. You're, you're right. There was plot holes throughout. I didn't really know why the baddies didn't like them. Why they were there to die. Um, but I, I wouldn't even call it plot holes. That's the thing. Uh, we're. I, I'm. It's not my intention for us to be uh, sarcastic, and sniping, and cynical about it. 
but it's not plot holes. It's just tremendously underwritten. I think it's smart, as you've said, I think it's smart to have scenes of tension which don't involve the dinosaurs. Some of the best stuff in the first two films by Spielberg have that. Julianne Moore on the glass in the trailer in Lost World and twice in Jurassic Park, the abseil down the... It kind of looks like a dam and I've never understood the geography of it. But the abseil (laughs) down the dam followed by escaping from the car in the tree, both superb and... Those could come from any adventure pictures, and that's what makes Jurassic Park a terrific adventure picture. It's not as though the dinosaurs are used sparingly, but there's other scenes of tension which don't involve the dinosaurs, and they're incredibly exciting Mm. and superbly done. And uh, I remember, um, even as a kid, I saw it when I was 10 years old, but in the playground before, the talk had always been about the raptors in the kitchen, which was a surprise to me. Because that film was advertised as T-Rex. Original Jurassic Park, 1993, all about the T-Rex. And yeah. then Velociraptors were a, uh, a fairly obscure mm. dinosaur. But they were the fact, breakaway star, weren't they? Yeah, they're depicted incorrectly. Uh, they're more like Deinonychus. Mm. But yeah, breakaway star. And so, But, but f- before, the advanced word was, yeah, T-Rex is good, but there's a thing in the kitchen with the kids, which is amazing. Mm. But then, for weeks and months afterwards, we were talking about the car coming down and does he say so we're back in the car again <laughs> there's little, little elements of wittiness there's nothing like that in juan antonio Bayona's fallen kingdom is simultaneously unsophisticated and yet too mature too po-faced there isn't any um levity any of the levity that spielberg usually brings to his work and jurassic world i if you've read my article and please do because I am. Um, I'm interested to hear the opinions of others. I didn't write it as agitation. I genuinely believe that inserted within that film, throughout it, by Connolly and Trevorrow, is an attempt to subvert their perceived cynicism. So, firstly, to admit they can't be Spielberg, so they're not going to try. But what they can do is they can subvert Spielberg and show a level of cynicism not just about Jurassic Park, but about the fandom around it and about Hollywood blockbuster franchise filmmaking. But there isn't anything like that at my my first watch of A Fallen Kingdom. Watching Jurassic World for the first time with Luke, I had vitriolic reactions, he'll remember. Yeah. I wasn't audibly tutting, but it was more like in a, a, every couple of minutes a kind of... <sighs> I remember you were, you, and I'm not joking, you were about to storm out with the reveal of the park. So we had the Jurassic Park theme <laughs> yeah. uh, growing and swelling. And then, of course, as the, the reveal of the park is... It, it, it's the sort of helicopter shot you know, through through the uh, hotel windows of a Holiday Inn, branded Holiday Inn, I think, and uh, through the hotel yeah, yeah. Uh, windows to the park. A big... Not all CG, but ex- ex- certainly um, a set that's then CG extended. And But you thought that that was, for the reveal of the park, you thought that was painfully insufficient. You almost stormed out of the movie at that point, I think. And it wasn't it wasn't for effect. It was an, my, my honest interaction with the film. But you know what? It, it provoked a response from me. I was present while watching Jurassic World, even though for much of it, I was irritated by the execution of it. But... Fallen Kingdom didn't even get that out of me. I was mainly under-entertained. Mm. Bored would be too... Actually, bored would even be too strong a term for it. Most of the two-hour running time, I was noticing the artifice of the film. 
uh, and all of the poor choices that had been made. With any with any new film, as Luke and I always say, watching it for the first time is just to get a, a relatively shallow imprint. You under, Hopefully, you understand the plot, you understand the characters, you can tell what happened in the film, and you'll know whether it was very good or probably bad or worse. I, I kind of uh, hold fire on a judgment. But I don't know if it's just an age thing and you don't want... It's too easy to... And especially in 2018, as we are now, it's too easy to come out and say, well, everything is either black or white. Mm. And I'm, I'm not down with that to either say, oh, well, if it wasn't fantastic, it must only be terrible. Because it's a binary like that. And mm. I don't agree with that at all. But Fallen Kingdom was another wasted opportunity. The new elements, the genre turn, the things that Bayona put into the picture, which haven't often been seen in Jurassic Park pictures, didn't belong in a Jurassic Park picture. And to iterate, I don't mean to sound like a fanboy when I say that, but there is much more that can be done with this franchise, and they're just not doing it. Yeah, we can, we can definitely talk about, about some of that. And uh, I think um, it's interesting. For some reason, it's opened internationally about two weeks before the US. I don't, I don't know the reason for that. Uh, yeah, I, that's a funny one, isn't it? It's really weird, because um, you'd expect... You know, any negative, they must have confidence in it because you, you'd expect any negative worldwide buzz to, to hit the States and then prevent people from showing up and uh, having bums on seats. But I do know that internationally, it uh, uh, in its opening weekend, and again, it's got one of those opening weekends where it was it was out for most of the week here in the UK. So the opening weekend is not just Friday, Saturday, Sunday. It's sort of Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, Saturday, Sunday. So you get a big opening weekend. They've yeah. gotten suspiciously big over the years, these weekends. the I think it did about half as well. I think, um, just trying to go through the stats here in the 48 territories, ahead uh, of its US release, it's coming with uh, 151 million. Uh, so yeah, internationally, Jurassic World Fallen Kingdom coming with 151one million dollars uh which is around about half what jurassic world opened to in 2015 overseas when it took the over all-time overseas opening record of 316.6 million uh although uh, there is there is a caveat that uh, the film opened in 12 more territories than fallen kingdom did and also we're not uh we're forgetting china where it did almost 100 million in china uh back in 2015 so so that's 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 a little fair enough but um but, uh, I mean, it was a packed screening compared to the screenings I've been in for Solo, uh, the new Star yeah. Wars film. It was it was busy, <clears throat> although it did dawn on me because one of the things with Jurassic World, when I came away from it feeling a bit underwhelmed, I saw kids in the street with Jurassic World T-shirts and I thought to myself, you know what, Luke, it's not your movie anyway. There's some nods in there for you, but but mostly it's a dinosaur film for a new generation of kids. And uh, if some of those kids grow up to um, do, do their own Jurassic Parks or whatever, write books, uh, create some kind of art, then, hey, that's great. Whereas, I won't accept that, though. No, not for me. Well, but with this it's, one, though, it's not, it's... Uh, even accepting that premise for one minute, this one, I couldn't tell you who it was made for. I got no yeah, idea. Yeah. I, I got no idea. None of that stuff, barely any of that stuff, could have possibly been appealing to a 10-year-old. And and uh, it certainly wasn't appealing to a 30-year-old. So I'm not. I'm not sure. <laughs> yeah, one of the central tenets of Jurassic World is audiences are inured, oversaturated. They want more teeth, bigger, louder, and I agree with that in myself. Like, there's an element of me which 
agrees with that, but not in the not necessarily in the way that it's being imparted by Connolly and Trevorrow. But what I mean is, we saw dinosaurs in 1993, and that was astonishing. Dinosaurs aren't enough now. I need story. I need characters and clarity. A spectacle is not enough anymore. It was in 93, and it was done with aplomb and spectacle is not enough for me and it shouldn't be enough spectacle simple spectacle should never be enough when it comes to franchises of relative intelligence jurassic park aliens terminator even mm. i think there's intelligence in and sophistication in the in the terminator franchise the first two are fantastic and the third is okay yeah that's another one that's fallen by the wayside going back to little things about it and this is in terms of almost a, a fan's appreciation, a fan's criticism of it. But at the climax, the little kid releases all the dinosaurs. I, just, I sat in the cinema, I'm just thinking, so, I guess, fuck California then. Yeah, right? I, I right. didn't understand what? any of that. Yeah. It, and an, an audience will hold that opinion. You can be as, as humanist a director as you like, yeah. imparting what you're attempting is an ecological theme. Yeah. But no, yes, those dinosaurs have a right to live, no, their right to live does not <laughs> trump know. thousands of Californians' real estate, homes, jobs, lives. You've Those, spent twenty-five the years. Will wreak you've spent twenty-five years setting up the Velociraptors as the most terrifying movie antagonists, you know, of all time, uh, short of the Xenomorphs and Darth Vader. And yeah, and then one of the final shots, which it, are we supposed to feel triumphant? I'm not sure. Is of this if the, is of the Velociraptor running across the landscape, overlooking the Californian suburbia, about to uh, run off into the town, and I just thought, yeah. what the hell? I don't even know what I'm supposed to be feeling. Am I jubilant for the dinosaur? Am I worried for the cat? Maybe I'm supposed to be both. Maybe that's the point. But I don't know how you spend 25 years building up these antagonists, and then um, and then apparently it was okay that they were set free at the end. Um, uh, yeah, it's a, it's an unrelated note. It occurred to me halfway through the film, n- none of the goodies were going to die. And it didn't matter who you were in the first films, uh, you could get it. Yes, the lawyer got it, because he's a lawyer and no one likes a lawyer. And he left the kids. But Eddie Carr got it, and he was just trying to help everyone out in Lost World. And uh, Samuel L. Jackson got it. Yeah, Robert Muldoon got it. He hadn't done anything wrong at all. Uh, whereas yeah. whereas with this one, it, halfway through, I realised Chris Pat and Bryce Dallas Howard aren't going to get it. I know they're signed up for the third one, but beyond that, they're the they're the goodies from the first film. They're not going to go. We know this. And then I realised that the other two goodies that were left, the the hacker and the veterinarian, were comic relief uh, and barely in it anyway. I just they're not going to get it. They're not going to kill those guys off. Exactly. And I, no I, I knew it. There's no jeopardy. And it goes beyond our metatextual understanding of the films we're watching. You know, a nine-year-old doesn't know that Bryce Dallas Howard is contracted for three films and probably an additional two if they want to spin off her character. The Further Adventures of a Lady in High Heels, although now she's in combat boots. Mm-hmm. But the scenes aren't directed in... I mean, they might appeal to a very young child, but the filmmaking isn't of sufficient standard to actually engender tension and jeopardy and thrills in Fallen Kingdom. As I've spoken about, Jurassic World has a get-out. I think it's got an inbuilt get-out. It can always claim that it isn't imitating Spielberg, it's subverting Spielberg, that it knows it can't be Spielberg, and so it's trying to do something else. The Mosasaur eats I'd... Jaws. You know, yeah, they have exactly. Jaws yeah, I, I, I don't think Fallen Kingdom can make that argument. 
again, there's a few a few good things about it. And as I said, it's good that it takes the action off the island. Uh, the genre turn is welcome. And what the ending sets up is diverting. Uh, Jurassic World. Humans interacting with dinosaurs on a statewide scale. Mm. In, an interstate scale. We're, we're now to understand that the dinosaurs can get to any In-N-Out burger in, so they'll be looking at that secret menu. That is an interesting term, but blimey, you know, we t- it took an hour and 50 minutes to get to something, and that's what I mean about this being at this very much the second instalment in a trilogy, uh, just queuing up the next bit. Mm. A little bit like, um, it doesn't happen so much in episodic television anymore, because Game of Thrones, for example, 10, 13 episodes a season, almost everyone is essential. They're not all necessarily good, mm. but every one of those episodes is essential, but Luke and I... And the listeners out there will recall how with a 24-episode season yes, on a show such as The X-Files, there would be three or four episodes of filler. And 24 itself was particularly bad for this. Over the course of a season, there would be absolutely four or five episodes which were inessential, which were placeholders, because there wasn't enough to stretch over 24 episodes. Yeah. Now we're getting that for an entire film. And it's happened in the past as well with... Um, the penultimate Harry Potter suffered from this. Yeah, I haven't yeah, seen it, yeah. but I understand that the, the, there is no climax. Uh, there's no ending. Mm. And uh, The Hobbit, I think, that ended up as three films, didn't it? It did, yeah. All, all three of those so films suffer. The suffer second from. Hobbit suffers for it as well, wherein the audience, the audience knows it's a trilogy, and so the filmmakers know it's a trilogy, and they... They just seem to forget to make a film to hit filmmakers' notes, mm. and it's simple. It, it is elementary, simple stuff. You know, Spielberg didn't go to film school. He he figured out a lot of this stuff um, autodidactically to an extent in his mid twenties. He did, yeah. Just realize, you know, you you watch Hitchcock, uh, you watch Powell and Pressburger, and the B movies of the forties and Kane, and you get an understanding for storytelling and hitting beats. And as I've explained. It's not if the, if you put the lead in a scene of Jeopardy. Yes, a nineteen forties audience might think, "My goodness, how will the hero get out of this?" But that won't happen in twenty eighteen. You need to put people around him that might die, even if it's only to show the Jeopardy, to show that the as a uh, Sam Rockwell says in Galaxy Quest, he says, "I'm an extra. I'm a glorified extra. I'm the guy who <laughs> dies to prove that the situation is dangerous." And yeah, 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 yeah. Um, and, and I thought that going back to Jurassic Park 3, which isn't underappreciated, it's fine. Every, I think everybody agrees it's fine. No, it's, it's, it's just below Three fine. Five. It's not, it's just, it's, it's not, it, okay. it doesn't deserve to be made. But it's, because uh, they didn't have a story to tell. They threw the script out six weeks ahead of filming. And, exactly. And they, right, they didn't have a story to tell. They didn't have a story to tell. So they, filmed, they, they had a whole story planned out. There was two or three drafts. I won't go into all of them. But the final draft that was almost going to be shot was about a, fam- two, a family of teenagers on one plane, of adults on another plane, crash landing in either sauna. There was a subplot with dinosaurs on the mainland. We'll come to that in a minute because that's one of my ideas uh, you know, for, for future uh, installments. Yeah. Um, and... And then, so there was this subplot going on. So that there was there was already all of these sets and costumes being built. There was a you know extended scene in the laboratory with raptors where they they were in there for days trying to devise traps to to, to avoid the raptors and and entrap and ensnare the raptors. Uh, there was the Tyrannodon scene, things like that. So six weeks out, they threw it all out because Joe Johnson thought it was too complex. 
and they decided to streamline the whole thing. David Kep came up with an offhand idea of just having a, a single family rescued on the island, and uh, and there you go. So they didn't have a story to tell. So anyway, sorry, I railroaded you there. But um, the reason I think Jurassic Park Three isn't fine is because the Trandon sequence, things like that, show real panache. And I don't think Johnson's a terrible director. Um, he knows action sequences and can set stuff up very, very well. But they hadn't they didn't have a story to tell, so that's why that's why I don't think yeah. it's worth ninety minutes of your time, unfortunately. And but in even in Jurassic Park three, Cooper and Nash, more is conveyed of their character than we get of any of the mercenaries in Fallen Kingdom. That's and true. It, when I saw Jurassic Park three at the cinema, those two are introduced and you want them to be a lot badder than they are. Yeah, you, you want do. them to be cooler than they are. They never get the opportunity to do anything interesting at all. They're in it for barely six minutes. I happen to like the character actor, John Deal. I knew him from a few things. Yeah. And he's set up with his shades. They're set up as uh, <clears throat> they're set up as badasses. But they're invested with greater impetus and greater characterization than anything in Fallen Kingdom. As I've said, even in Jurassic Park three, it's not done well, but it's done just enough. Mm that you think they might stick around and you might get to care for them. But Fallen Kingdom doesn't have that. And here's a question I've got, a question I have specifically for you about the ending of Fallen Kingdom. Doesn't it rip off Planet of the Apes? Uh, yeah, I guess. You could argue that, couldn't you? Um... Because that's how the the recent Planet of the Apes reboot series, which I know you're a fan of, yeah, I like those takes films. place in San Francisco and eventually ends up, well, very quickly, ends up with the premise of intelligent apes taking over the woods and forests north of San Francisco. And that's basically what we've got here. So that's the other thing I was thinking as well, as it came to its close. Mm. This isn't even... It isn't in any way original. This happened only two or three years ago, mm. off the back of the James Franco one. Mm. And, I, yeah, I, I couldn't get past the, the notion of just thorough destruction. We do need to move on. But one last thing. Again, it speaks to the slapdash nature of the production, I think. Uh... Fallen Kingdom's climax takes place at a huge, spooky mansion. An auction is occurring, led by Toby Jones' character. They're selling off the dinosaurs, and so a procession of oligarchs and rich bastards turn up. There's some severe Japanese, yeah. some Chinese, a Russian who, yeah. when he's uh, bidding, says, 15 millions, <laughs> 20 millions. Yeah, 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 okay, cool, you know. Um, number one, where's George Lucas? Because this is literally in Marin. I think I even recognised the dock. <laughs> I think it's, it's it's the one that's just past uh, the Golden Gate Bridge. So Lucas would be there with his little... Uh, if it doesn't offend anybody, I'd quite like to spend 20 million on a stegosaurus. So, oh, okay, you know, I, maybe, you know. Um, so number one. And number two, it's silly to just have... In California, in Northern California, go north of San Francisco, it's ridiculous to suggest that the only rich pricks that would turn up are some Eastern oligarchs. <laughs> well, if they were going for those stereotypes, yeah, they, they where, was the, where was the... Where was the... They had all those stereotypes there. Where was the Silicon Valley stereotype? Where was where was Zuckerberg? Yes. <laughs> and where was Martin Screlly, the farmer bro? <laughs> I like the way that he holds a mirror up to society. Whether intentionally or not, he quickly became a professional troll. He was a, a movie bad guy, but in real life. There's one copy of the new Wu-Tang Clan album. And I've got it, yeah. suckers! Ah! <laughs> you know. and uh, But but as usual, and it, it really does, it upsets, it genuinely upsets me. As usual, it was the case that focus shifted only onto the antagonist and not to the wider problem. So Martin Screlly bumped up the price of important medication by hundreds of percent, possibly thousands of percent. 
just as every other company does. Yeah. He was working class and particularly offensive. And so the internet went after him. Every other company is still doing that. They did it for 10 years before he did it, and they've done it for 10 years afterwards. Yeah. But, hey, we got Screlly, so that's the important thing. He's in prison. Mm. The problem, the problem remains. But the Twitter troll, he's locked up now. Ah, yeah, we got him. Yeah. Nonsense. Anyway, he should have been there on um, work. What's it called? On work release. Yeah, would yeah. have got him into the picture. But uh, there should have at least been maybe he a representation was... of Silicon Valley type. Maybe he was the telephone bidder. I don't know. Maybe. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> but and, and I'm not. That's not a plot hole. And I'm being a little bit uh, cantankerous there. But that would have been, that would have provided a little bit of levity, a bit of an understanding from the filmmakers that their audience is savvy and has a level of sophistication about them. But instead, no, it's the it's the easy targets. Well, also, again, we need to move on, really, but uh, and uh, there were some scenes that I enjoyed. I hasten to add, like I say, T-Rex introduction, thought that was really cool. But um, this whole weaponized dinosaurs thing, ever since I was uh, eight, nine years old and I, wor- I played Jurassic Park Rampage Edition on the Sega Mega Drive, in the manual, it describes the backstory for the game, which is a continuation of the first film, and it describes that, that people are trying to steal dinosaurs off the island and it, that maybe they want to weaponize them. And when I was eight or nine, I thought, that's a really stupid idea. Man, what a rubbish idea. It's a good job like the, the <laughs> next movie won't have that idea because by that point, uh, my dad was reading the Lost World novel and I was—I uh, actually read it just ahead of the film as well. So I was aware of the, the general premise and setup of the film. And I was so glad that... Um, weaponized dinosaurs were not a thing that the films were ever going to stray into of course when they were writing the script for jurassic park 4 i was hearing about weaponized dinosaurs a lot they toned it down a lot to the point where you they just alluded to it in the uh, in jurassic world the film now again we have weaponized dinosaurs in this one and it's pretty much there they're selling them to be weaponized and beyond all that beyond the fact that eight-year-old luke little boy thought it was a stupid idea when he was eight years old like i've never been convinced by the idea of weaponized dinosaurs because <laughs> It's a living organic being. Won't they just shoot them? And one of the dinosaurs that they're trying to auction off, they go, "Oh, it's been described as nature's tank or whatever." And it's like a herbivore. I don't. What are they? I don't understand. I know. I know they're trying to make out that with the Indoraptor, they, um, they, uh, you know, that it's trained to to attack things. I, I kind of get that. But weaponized dinosaurs isn't very convincing. Also, tell me this. I'm sure it's in the film. But at the beginning of the film, we're teased with the scene. The opening tease is they have to get the Indominus Rex bones from the bottom of the lake of the from the first film, uh, because they need those hybrid bones. Uh, they still have they they bring the hybrid bone back that they they get of the Indominus Rex from Jurassic World One. They've already made the Indoraptor, so why do they like need the bone? What, what what did they need that for? And then oh, and and I thought it was gonna like be a setup for the third one, but then the baddie doesn't get away with it because the Rex crushes it or whatever. So is the opening scene from Fallen Kingdom set six to twelve months before the rest of the film? Is that what it is? Oh, maybe. Is it? Uh, well, that's one way of explaining it. Certainly, it it has to be six to twelve months rather than say six to twelve days, unless Henry Wu is. <laughs> really running the overtime yeah and bd wong bless him there's a reason he was just a bit player in that first movie in the novel Wu is has a much bigger role to play and yeah he is a little bit duplicitous not in any major way but he definitely um is convinced of his own genetic power rather than whether to stop to stop and think whether or not he should wield it whereas in these films uh they i can see where they brought his character back as like you'd call it fan service 
But man, BD Wong, bless him. He's just not cut. He doesn't have the chops for this. The, these these movies, the expanded role, does he? It's just not there. I thought he was all right in Jurassic World and Jurassic. Uh, I'm even. I struggle with the names. Even even. It's not even as if the names are becoming convoluted, but they're all rather similar. Especially since Lost World had to have the subtitle Jurassic Park because otherwise it seemed like the adaptation of Arthur Conan Doyle because there was a Lost World from the 20s. Couldn't they have just gone with 4 and 5? Anyway, uh, I, I think that Fallen Kingdom makes Jurassic World... If you want to get what, really what do, confused... What do we call it now that, there's, now that there's Jurassic World Fallen Kingdom... What should we call? It should be Fallen Kingdom Jurassic World if it's following. Yeah, but they're, the they're spin-offs. Type set down. They're spin-offs, and and that's one of the things I want to say actually. That to me, the Jurassic World films, in fact, even the Jurassic Park sequels, I see them as spin-offs. They're not sequels. They're not in the same universe. They're in a different place. It's an yeah. alternate universe. That it's a spin-off. But if you want to get really confused, uh, in the nineties, they did pair Michael Crichton's two original novels together in a big hardback book, and it was called Michael Crichton's Jurassic World. So if you want to get... Oh, blimey. <laughs> <laughs> oh, dear. Um, well, Fallen Kingdom makes Jurassic World look like a better movie than it is and was. But I do think B.D. Wong is fine in it, I think. I, I don't know how dialogue in world is adequate. It's acceptable most of the time. The dialogue in Fallen Kingdom is unacceptable most of the time. Perfunctory there's just nothing to these characters and again i think part of it goes back to the notion that in, in jurassic park they're three intelligent people indiana jones is an adventurer but he again he has a degree mm. a master's probably a phd he's a teacher and he feels like that uh, you know he, he feels like that throughout yeah. the film that's the key thing and that's it, that's part of the it's gag with Indy. to get behind it, it's, it's part of the gag with indy as well because in a way he's an adventurer who's always in over his head you know he's never quite good enough to be an adventurer i guess if he's if he's a university professor that sort of makes sense doesn't it my favorite franchises are those in which the protagonist is the smartest guy in the room either through a level of academic intelligence or a crude experience so axel foley in beverly hills cop the reason we like him is because he's really smart through experience through streetwise knowledge Mm. and it's the same with so for instance ellen ripley in the alien films and ellie sattler was intelligent and that's one of the reasons i think she's a good character and i there's not much to get behind with claire deering yes you're not because she's been assigned as lead you're not even supposed to like her in the first jurassic world picture for for until she has grown a bit. You know, you're not really supposed to like her. She's she's a suit. She's one of the baddies. Um, she's set up. You're not really supposed yeah. to like her that much. I mean, I like... No vim I, and vigour to these. I liked your reading of Jurassic World. That it was all the characters... You know, we, we're set up with a lot of characters we don't like to begin with, but it's the characters that learn to socialise and rely on one another who survive, and it's the ones who, you know, do not learn that lesson, maybe even stuck to their phone. Who, who get it. Um, yeah, because there's virtue in socialisation, which is a good message. We need to move on. We not do. Not because Fallen Kingdom is terrible. It isn't even... It's not like that. You know, that sometimes the most fun can be had not in a good film, but in analysing and taking to pieces a bad film. But Fallen Kingdom isn't an interestingly bad film. Jurassic World is an interestingly bad film.
I'm sure you'll agree that's quite enough for one issue. You've been listening to Fletcher Walton and Luke Littleboy. Thank you for joining us as we re-enter the electronic lab room. And be sure to get lost with us again next week for part two of our tour through Jurassic Park. Subscribe to our podcast on iTunes or on Spotify. Contact us on Instagram and Facebook. Browse our wares on eBay at One Sensational Shop. And visit our website, onesensationalshop.com. Daddy, the Rain Man suite. Do you dig that? We're going to Vegas, Mike. Vegas! Do you think we can do by midnight? Money, we're going to be up 500 by midnight. Yeah, Vegas! Vegas, baby, Vegas! Vegas! <laughs>